Hey, 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 this is Bitch Face. I'm Phoebe. And I'm Nicole. This episode was written by one of my favorite writers and artists and people, poet laureate of this janky studio we recorded. <laughs> so true. Nicole. You all know her as NK. She's right here next to me in the studio because she always is. So I'm going to ask her some questions about this piece before we get into it. Hey, NK. Hey, what's up? So this piece is called White Drag. Um, tell me about why you wrote it and what it's about. Um, well, as you know, I, I wrote it for um, this like queer feminist performance series that happens here in Los Angeles pretty regularly. Shout out sorority. The theme was, yeah, the theme was passing. Um, so I spent a lot of the summer after I got back from New York just like thinking about that theme and what it meant to me and actually like was really like writing it right up until almost two days before the performance. I want to say like two hours. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, it, it was like two days and I was like, I'm going to back out of this. And you were like, why don't you just like, why don't you, you said, why don't you just look at your old blog? White people love me at blogspot.com. Nicole has told me about it. Came up at one point that Nicole had this blog, white people love me blogspot.com. And I was like, I need to read this, but it doesn't exist anymore. I'm like pretty good at internet stalking and I couldn't find it. Yeah, it, it definitely it still exists, but just no one can see it but me. I wrote it in like 2009. Um, so anyway, I wrote it for that performance and. Uh, what did I mean? What did it unearth when you got back into the into your blog spot? Into the blog? Oh well, first of all, it was hilarious. Like I'm pretty hilarious. <laughs> She's hilarious. Am I right? I did think. I mean, I definitely like. I lolled uh, a couple times. Um, it just reminded me of all these things that I always about. It's it's about gra- my time in graduate school. So it reminded me of all these things about that time that I had forgotten about or had like in the story that I tell about my time in graduate school. I usually talk about how like it wasn't really. That's stressful for me as a person of color. I didn't really experience some of the things, some of like the sort of fucked up white fuckery that a lot of writers of color talk about having experienced in MFA programs. I really felt that I hadn't experienced that. Um, but then you were it, wrong. It turns out I was really wrong, and I had just like bar- as I'm like want to do, I just buried it, buried it deep. That's <laughs> like that's kind of like my my mo, or has been until recently. Thanks to Tate, I'm not gonna do that anymore. I'm gonna get yes. out of myself. Um, Release. Yeah, be so, releasing always. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that was a big surprise, but also I was really excited that I still had um, this like sort of prop that was really relevant to what became my eventual performance, which we're about to hear. Six years ago, I moved to LA and started applying to MFA programs. I had been writing a lot of fiction since undergrad, but hadn't published anything. So I decided I should write a blog to precipitate my inevitable book deal and literary fame. The blog I started was called White People Love Me. Across the top of the homepage it reads, if I'm not already your token blog friend, I probably will be soon. In the about me of White People Love Me, I wrote, I am the Lisa Turtle in the Bayside High of life. And the thumbnail image next to my name is a photo of me at a festival. You see me from the waist up, I'm leaning forward in a backless shirt. So you see my bare back and also the back of a white man standing next to me and on his back is a tattoo of a giant Confederate flag. We're standing so close together that our arms were almost touching. Whitepeoplelovememe.blogspot.com was mostly just my ruminations on being a black hipster weirdo with literary aspirations. This was like 2009, so I was writing about medicine for melancholy and childish Gambino and Das Racist, and how I could never make any black friends and how all the whites I was meeting in LA didn't understand me either. 
but I can also see myself coming to terms with this dual experience of isolation I was going through. In the first post, I listed some of the reasons why I was writing. Reason one, I grew up in America, in the suburbs, in the South, which means I grew up mired in fluctuating degrees of racial self-loathing, which is hard to admit and hard to write about and hard to have to remember. In third grade, I had a massive crush on this white boy on my street, and I used to have daydreams about impressing him with my skateboarding skills and ripped jeans. And in those daydreams, I was white. Long blonde hair and everything. Thanks to all my favorite childhood things, Disney princesses, Saved by the Bell, cable television in general, the Babysitter's Club, Sweet Valley High, my hegemonic public school education, and, you know, the world at large, I absorbed the idea that white is right. Needless to say, the inverse of that had also seeped in. Reason two. I'm always the only one. My sister and I were the only ones in our Jazz Tap Show Tues dance class in middle school. I was the only one on the soccer team in high school. I was the only one in my whole dorm my freshman year of college and frequently the only one in class. I've been the only one in two UCLA Extension Fiction workshops. I'm the only one in my writing group, my future MFA program, my current dance studio, the summer camp where I volunteered last summer, and most house parties and UCB shows I attend in LA. If I see another black person in Silver Lake, I'm shocked. And then I get all excited and try not to look obvious as I lurk them from afar. As the final reason, I just wrote book deals. And then at the end of that summer, I left Silver Lake and moved to graduate housing. And in the fall, I continued to post now and then, but was mostly concerned with becoming the next great American black indie voice of my generation. I had to turn in a new short story every five weeks. There were many time-honored literary traditions in the programs for writing. On Halloween, the English PhD students would host Drink or Treat, which is basically a bar crawl, except you would travel from house to house in costume. In the fall, all the writers went on a retreat to Joshua Tree. And in the spring, the big party was the MFA prom, which was held in honor of the third years and typically included both a reading and a roast. It was a long-standing tradition that the fiction and poetry workshops were both on Wednesday, and that afterwards the writers would convene in the campus bar to drink pitchers and, you know, posture and pontificate or whatever. I think it's accurate to say that I'm experienced at camouflage. White people love me. Evidently, I'm non-threatening, I'm not like other black people, and I'm supposed to take that as a compliment. When white people say disparaging things about black people around me, I'm supposed to understand they don't mean me, they mean them. But in graduate school, I am the only black writer and the white girls are afraid of me and repeatedly ask the men in my ear to ask me why I hate them. At parties, they forget that I'm in the room. They tell stories about the ghetto black girls at home and shake their asses around and call it twerking. And if they do remember that I'm in the room but have something to say about a black person, anything, even something neutral like this one time, a third year fiction writer from Wisconsin asked this first year poet from Alabama if she knew the work of this famous poet who happened to be black and she whispered the word black like my existence is a slur. I'm the only one, and though no one ever acknowledges it, I might be the first Black writer to ever attend this program in its entire history. In the name of craft, we don't discuss issues of identity in workshop, and we insist that in this way critique stays neutral. My stories are experiments in literary passing. I want to write Black stories about Black women, yet I refuse to use the requisite signifiers, allusions to hair texture or skin color, referencing certain foods, certain music, certain neighborhoods. The way a reader would know that my characters are not white is that they constantly experience racialized microaggressions, like a scene in which the woman in the story visits a high-end makeup counter where the product she wants only comes in varying shades of white, or another scene in which she tells her male doctor that she's experiencing inexplicable, excruciating stomach pains, and the doctor is skeptical and then dismissive. But this was subtext. 
The main story was about a relationship, and so everyone at the workshop table assumed the characters were white because they hadn't explicitly been told otherwise. Recently, I went to a panel at the California AFAM Arts Museum, and the dancer Taisha Paget, who's black, told the curator Aaron Cristobal, who's also black, that she doesn't know how to dance at clubs anymore because her ballet training institutionalized the natural rhythm out of her. And when she said that, I thought about my own experiences in grad school. And I remembered something that I had totally forgotten about, even though I still had the wig. What I remembered was how, in my first year of grad school, under these conditions, I started going to parties in this costume, a cheap blonde wig and hot pink lipstick and this high, dumb voice, and that at some point, I started calling it white drag. After the panel, I thought back to that time and remembered that I bought the wig as part of a Halloween costume. I wore a gown and a tiara and a stash that said fifth runner-up and fake cried all night. And that sometime after that, I wore it again to a party called Bad Decisions that was actually so good it became a new tradition. The theme of a Bad Decisions party is obvious. The bar was stocked with hypnotic and Manischewitz and other gross and bizarre libations. The sexual tension among the PhDs was amped all the way up. Most of the writers were awkward and sexless. There were a lot of people in hideous, ill-advised outfits. The house was dark and crowded and loud. I guess because most white drag nights ended in me getting white girl wasted, I actually don't remember much about my interactions at these parties. I do remember explaining it at bad decisions to these two dudes from the psych department whose interest in it was probably related to that fact. I remember that when those two white girls, that first year poet and that third year fiction writer, saw me, they did that thing where they looked at each other and mouthed, oh, oh my, my god. god. And I went up to them like, oh my god, hi! And talked to them in that dumb voice about stuff white chicks like. Jonathan Franzen, The Bachelor, being cunty at parties. But even if I didn't speak, white drag was aggressive. I think I wanted to remind them that my otherness was permanent. I wanted to remind them of their inherent privilege and that any of my attempts to pass as white, as literary, as talented, as competent, as worthy of prizes or publications or fellowships would be conspicuous and grotesque failures. White drag was an acknowledgement of how unfair I thought that was. I think most people ignored me or didn't know what I was doing. Maybe they thought I kept wearing the wig for fun. But once, some white friends of friends who were visiting for the weekend and were introduced to me while I wore white drag at a party admitted later that they assumed it was my normal presentation. This cheap blonde wig and hideous makeup, this failed approximation of whiteness, seemed to them a possible earnest attempt to be seen as, I don't know what, more beautiful? The audacity of whiteness is thinking I would want to inhabit it so badly that they couldn't see this wig, this costume, as a joke. It never occurred to them that I could be mocking them. It was a right performance, an acknowledgement that I wasn't like them and I knew it. I wasn't one of them and I realized I didn't want to be. But at the same time, white drag was also tragic. On some level, I was wearing my self-loathing as a costume. White drag made public my private feelings of isolation. It wasn't a disguise. White drag called attention to my social segregation. It was also a fuck you to a lifetime of dutiful assimilation. I never wrote about it for the blog or for anything else. I want to note that there were two Asian men in my year, that the student body is predominantly API. But knowing what I know now about whiteness, about how whiteness is conferred, is transferable, and how adjacency to whiteness often relies on anti-blackness, about how blackness is its own thing, apart in many ways from the experiences of other POCs, I see now how my black identity had a unique bearing on my experience, both socially and artistically. I'm not sure I saw that then, although I obviously felt it. 
The last post I made on Why People Love Me was on October 28, 2010, not long before I put on this wig for the first time. Here's what I wrote. I left my weekly three-hour writing workshop feeling crazy, sleepy, inexplicably agitated, lonely, and insecure. I got a coffee and walked towards the pub, where the writers congregate on Wednesday nights after class. But when I got there, instead of going in, I kept walking. I wanted to be alone, and I wanted to read through the draft of a story I had just printed out. And I thought about sitting at some of these out-of-the-way picnic tables where I could be alone without seeming antisocial. I am antisocial, but I'm always worried about seeming that way. On my way down the stairs, this girl in a pink t-shirt and a green and pink hat called out to me from the balcony up above me, in front of the student store. I like your hair, she said. I thanked her. Since it looked like maybe she had gone natural recently, I smiled in a way that I hoped was both appreciative and encouraging. Are you a freshman? She shouted down to me. I paused in the middle of the flight of stairs and laughed. I told her that I'm a first-year grad student, an MFA. Oh, she said. What's that? What do you study? I went back up the stairs and she met me at the top. I explained what an MFA is, and she explained that she is a senior and an English major and has just decided to write a book. About what, I asked. About second generations. Her parents are Nigerian, and she wanted to explore the unique experience of being raised in two cultures simultaneously. I nodded with recognition, although both my parents were born here. She asked me whether I write fiction or poetry. Fiction, I said. Are you the only one, she asked like she already knew the answer. So you wrote this for sorority, um, which I was at that performance. It was amazing. I cried. Um, cried my best, hottest white tears. But, uh, <laughs> but I. But then you performed it again, and it's kind of evolved. So I wanted to hear about that evolution. Yeah, I performed it. I wrote it for the audience at Sorority, which um, Sorority is a really cool series, but I was aware that the audience would be predominantly white people, and I just felt like I couldn't perform without addressing that somehow. So I kind of wrote it to like to address that audience in a sort of like, I really wanted to like call attention to like whiteness and offer like a critique of whiteness to some extent. Um, but the responses were really, I mean, I really didn't write it thinking like, this is hilarious. Like, I just thought it was like, maybe they're like worse than parts I thought would be would get laughs, but the sort of like the overwhelming response of like just like uproarious laughter was really surprising to me and definitely like some of it I nervous was, white laughter is, part of it yeah. okay <laughs> yeah I wasn't when you're in this when I was on stage like in the moment I kind of dissociate so I was like I don't really know what's happening like I don't see anyone I'm kind of I hear people and I like respond a certain a certain way but there was a little bit of like where instead of maybe associating yourself with some of the behavior that the white people in the story put forth. It was a little bit of like, you know, like, I can't believe people would do that, so I'm going to, like, laugh yeah, really loudly. Yeah. And there was also a moment where you talk about how you're one of the only black people in the program, the only black person, and and there was, like, this, like, 
like standing ovation uh, sort of that was like kind of weird i'm the only one and though no one ever acknowledges it i might be the first black writer to ever attend this program in its entire history like, just to sort of say like oh wow look at your accomplishment yeah you're saying like fuck this i was just like yeah like i was like to me like that was like one of the most like, damning details of the whole experience so that was not the, not the response i was going for necessarily and then the second audience what was different my friend jade has a salon for femmes of color and so it was um you know the audience was mostly femmes of color and just their tone in the room a lot of people's performances that night were like very like uplifting stories i mean there was like people like you know trans women doing like comedy it wasn't it wasn't all just sort of like tales like our tales of like whoa like it was very like joyful and celebratory um, and then, so then, but then in that context, like my piece was like, so, I think came off as like sad and tragic. Like I felt like there were a lot of like, a lot of people were just seemed like they just were more like relating and kind of like people just understood it on this more like visceral level or like at least that was a sense. And like, it, there definitely wasn't like laughter, um, maybe at moments, I think even the moments where I'm like, where it's like meant to be like kind of more light, it's like people still just saw it as like kind of a sad story, which like it also is, you know, it's like both those things at once. So at first it kind of fucked me up that. It really kind of fucked me up after having that second experience that it made me think about the first, which had happened like not that long before that. And just sort of like, what does it mean to have like a room full of white people kind of like laughing at your vulnerability? And like, I just was like, maybe I should never perform for white audiences ever again. But I just think that it's like part of like learning to perform for me. Like I'm not that I haven't performed that much. I used to you know publish fiction. So having the live audience is just like a consideration I'm not used to making. Did you guys know NK had a very serious past as a serious <laughs> fiction writer? <laughs> Thanks for being interviewed by me. Best interview I've ever done. <laughs> we should do this more often. Anytime. So, as I said, that piece was written by NK Nicole Kelly and produced by Elissa Dudley. If you've had any experiences being the only one, call 406-28-BITCH and tell us about it. <laughs>